0: And I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus, first and second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. When you get to Titus chapter 1, that's where it will be. As you're turning there, I do want to remind you, this is week 3 of um, our Faith Promise campaign. Um, and I would like to remind you uh, that this is how we give to missions uh, at Village Bible Church. This is how we determine our budget. And so we would consider, uh, we would like to ask every family and individual to consider how much the Lord would have you give per month toward missions in the following year. Our fiscal year resets June 1st. There's a basket in the back against um, the wall. And if you would like to fill this out and put that there, that'd be great. Don't sign it. We don't need to know your name. We just need to know uh, what the Lord has placed on your heart to give. We will use the cars that come in and our current giving to determine what the Lord's going to do with our missions budget in the coming year. So this will be, you got a couple more weeks uh, before we need these all in, all right? And then I also would like to just uh, point out the the Village Israel Study Tour. Um, we do have an info meeting um, next Sunday afternoon. Really looking forward um, to this. If you know you can't go this year, or you're not quite sure or you're going for sure, we want all of those categories of those groups at the meeting so that you can get a a flavor of of why we're going, what we're doing, and um, hope to go this year or in another year. So we'd love to have you um, for that information meeting for the Israel Study Tour. Uh, We are in a a sermon series in the book of Titus called Undistracted Godliness. Our theme for this year is is undistracted. And so we want to think uh, along those lines as we get to today's message, but one last thing I forgot to say is I bring you greetings from Big Bear Lake where our junior hires are on retreat. Um, we had a, a fun snowy arrival on Friday with chains and all kinds of fun stuff, and we uh, we arrived a little later than we had hoped, but we woke up in the morning to a soft blanket of white snow um, outside, and uh, several of our young people had never seen it snow before and hadn't been in the snow, so that was a lot of fun. Also, none of them had ever been in a jacuzzi at 104 degrees when it's 20 degrees outside, but that happened as well. So <laughs> uh, they are coming back uh, in a few hours, so we could pray for them uh, as they come back. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ron covered the uh, qualifications for elders in the church in verses 5 through 9, but because of the importance and the connection between uh, the, the paragraph of verses 5 through 9 and the paragraph that we're going to study today, verses 10 through 16, I actually want to read the entire first chapter of Titus um, so that we see it uh, all together as a group, and that would help us understand my sermon title, which is a little weird, but healthy countermeasures. We want to think about... Um, what Paul is saying to Titus, uh, what he has said about elders, what he's saying about false teaching, and how that applies to us today. So I will read um, as you follow along in the first chapter of Titus. Paul wrote this to his friend, his son in the faith, Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine." ...and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths... And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand and apply this passage today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet freely this morning, to hear from your word, to sing together, to confess our sins, to partake of the Lord's Supper as we celebrate and remember Jesus' body and his blood broken and shed for us. We thank you for those who are teaching our kids right now, for those who are watching the babies in the nursery, for those who are... Checking the sound and doing the live stream for those who are watching the live stream, for those who are out in the gym, for those who are here. Let me pray for those who aren't able to be here. Uh, We thank you for podcasting. We thank you for um, all of the options that we have to hear good teaching. I pray that our church would be defined by good and right and true doctrine and good and right and true good works flowing from that doctrine. Lord, make us more like your son Jesus every day. And for those who are here this morning who have not believed, who have not placed their trust in the Savior, who have not repented of their sins, who are headed to hell and judgment forever, Lord, rescue them this morning. By your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The reason that I titled the sermon, Healthy Countermeasures, is because twice in the verses I just read, you saw the word sound, and not used how we normally use it for sound audible sound, but for something that means health. If a building is sound, if a business plan is sound, it's healthy. Um, and that's what we want to focus on today because it's used twice here. And clearly what's happening is unsound or unhealthy teaching that is putting the church at risk. Paul writes this letter to Titus, as you'll see in verse 1, for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And I want you to notice right up front what Paul says there in verse one, knowledge of the truth, so important, doctrinal purity, doctrinal health, right belief, not disconnected from the next phrase, which accords with godliness. And that is the living out of that right doctrine. If we can recite the creed, but we can't live like Christians, there is a problem. And there is not a problem of of necessarily only action. There is a problem of belief. Subscription to a creed without the, the actions that flow out of it means you don't actually know the creed, the doctrine, the statement of faith, the belief. Because that belief necessarily leads to understanding how to live in light of the Savior. And so we want to balance those today. Some of us are are really all about knowledge and doctrine and accumulating more and being precise. And those are all very necessary things. And we must make sure that what flows from that is right acting, good works. In fact, one of the most important verses in all the Bible that many of us learned at a young age or when you became a Christian is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Sometimes we we leave ten out, and I think that that does us a disservice. That we're saved by grace through faith. It's not our own works that save us, right? What are we saved for? The very next verse says we're saved for good works that God planned beforehand that we should walk in them. And so there 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 cannot be a disconnect between the two. There must be a flowing to the other. Now, that doesn't mean it happens perfectly, right? That's what repentance and um, confession are for. That's why our life is a life of repentance, because this side of glory, we will never be able to do that perfectly. The God, and God is kind to us in allowing us to fail and fall and get back up again in community with our brothers and sisters. Now, in verses 5 through 9, um, Paul front loads instructions for the elders, for the leaders of the church, and they're qualifications that are almost entirely based on character, um, not skill. Almost entirely. The elders must be able to teach. Um, but aside from that, they're all uh, character qualifications. Because the type of man that leads the church is so important to counter the false doctrine that is coming from inside and outside of it. So you'll notice in verse 9, as he ends the qualifications for the elders... Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Holding it firm. So that, why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine. He has to be able to teach it, to communicate it, to pass it on. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So for those who are receptive to the teaching, the elder must be able to give the teaching. To those who are not receptive, the other must be able to rebuke and contradict and argue for the truth. Both of those things are necessary. And you'll notice in our passage today, verse 10 begins with what word? For. It's coming right out of the argument there. The argument continues right into verse 10. All of that is for this reason. There are many who are insubordinate. You look back up in verse 6 and a, an elder cannot be one who's open to the charge of insubordination. So these false teachers are first described as insubordinate. They're, some of your versions say, rebellious. They're undisciplined. These are those who cannot follow authority. This does not mean one just blindly follows leadership off of a cliff. What it does mean is that there's right and humble submission to leaders, knowing that leaders are held to a higher standard and have um, God as their judge. And so when the people in a church subordinate themselves to the elders, it is just like we subordinate ourselves to um, the government or a wife subordinates or submits herself to her husband. Um, it is not for the express purpose of the worthiness of the husband or the government, but because it is as to the Lord. There's always um, exceptions. There's escape hatches here, right? So for an abusive husband, we don't tell the wife, well, you got to submit. We don't say that. We say, get out of there. Let's help you escape that. For those under a government that is telling us to do the wrong things, there are escape hatches of um, conscience and of civil disobedience. So this is not an across-the-board thing that, that you were just, well, whatever the elders say goes. That's not how it goes. And what's typical of false teachers is that they are insubordinate. In fact, that's why there's so many splinter groups, right? When someone breaks off and goes somewhere else, there could be a good reason for that, but that is immediately a red flag. Because if they are unable to follow leadership, if they are undisciplined in that way, we, we've really got to tap the brakes and figure out what's going on in that situation. Secondly, they're empty talkers. Or some versions say idle talkers. They're vain talkers, mere talkers. Um, a Greek lexicon said that it might be better translated, they're windbags. <laughs> I love that. That was great. This Greek lexicon, windbag. It's like, wow, that's awesome. They're windbags. Their breath is just full of nothingness. It's vain. It's empty. Think of Ecclesiastes. Or another lexicon said they're blatherers. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) They're just a lot of words, but they're emptiness. They're empty. So they're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. And worst of all, they're deceivers. Deception takes it to a different level because this is willful misleading. It is on purpose. It is intentional and it is the most dangerous. And Paul tells Titus in his context, this is especially true at the end of verse 10 of those of the circumcision party. Uh, the Greek says those of the circumcision. Um, and the idea here is that we see that the false teachers are either Jewish background, which I think is very likely, or have adopted as Gentiles a, a very Jewish way of looking at following Jesus. Now, if you want to know more about the circumcision party, you can read the book of Galatians, like from cover to cover. <laughs> and you can look at acts 15 uh where the apostles had to call a council um together to figure out what the church was going what the church's position was going to be on this because the the circumcision refers to a party of either Jew, jewish um christians or those who were following that lead as gentiles and they basically said yes we believe in Jesus yes Jesus fulfills the old testament but one must follow the law of Moses and be circumcised if one is to properly follow god It put an undue burden on Gentiles who were not raised uh, under the law to now come under a law that Jesus had fulfilled. And so what was happening was the the overemphasis on the Jewishness, we don't want to lose the Jewishness of the Christian faith. We're we're doomed if we do that. But the overemphasis was basically saying you can't follow God without being Jewish. They wanted to make not only Christian converts but Jewish proselytes. And that was crossing a line that Jesus um, had already blown the doors open to the Gentiles and that Peter, uh, you'll remember in Acts 10 where the Lord um, gives him a vision of the sheet coming out of heaven and he's supposed to eat all these unclean things. I've never eaten those. And the, the idea being that since Jesus had fulfilled the law, um, that, that no longer was necessary to keep the law, um, especially the ceremonial parts, uh, so the wash, the hand washing, circumcision itself, um, being at the temple to worship, all of those distinctly Jewish things were not necessary to follow Jesus. And those things got hashed out in the first decades and centuries of the Christian church. Titus in particular had to deal with this on the island of Crete. And it's very similar to what Titus' associate Timothy was also dealing with in Ephesus. So if you go back and read First and Second Timothy, you'll see some some similarities here to this this false teaching that was rising up. Now, what's the response to the false teaching? Uh, What's interesting here is the wording that Paul uses. They must be silenced. That's strong language. They must be silenced. But you'll see why Paul uses that strong language. The the result of their false teaching, in verse 11, had upset whole families. And it had upset whole families. But, and they were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So, this is all inverted. They're teaching for gain. They're teaching in order to make a living, perhaps more than a living, to fleece the sheep. And they're, they're doing it with false teaching. And they're doing it with wrong motives. And the the upsetting of families is the immediate result. So Paul's concern is that the false teaching is not just some kind of heady false facts. His concern is that the false teaching leads to false living and it's upsetting whole entire families. The, the strong command, the urgency that they must be silenced is really important to note. You'll also see that they they are... Teaching for shameful gain, but what the elders are supposed to be are supposed to be ones who are not for shameful gain. They're not to love money. They're not to be driven by those motivations. Both here in Titus and in First Timothy, chapter three. And so, if we if we encounter different teaching, there are already here some markers to look for. Now, sometimes it's hard to see, right? I mean, most well. Many many false teachers are not that out in front about how they 're doing this to get rich okay but but that that should be a red flag that should be something to look for um, if for instance, you move and have to look for a different church that's one of the things you 're looking for in the elders and in the leaders to see what is the motivation here do i sense do I sense a, a love of money do I sense that there is a pursuit of pleasures um, that is above and beyond what would be normal. This is the emphasis of the false teachers. Now, the silencing here is also going to go together with what verse 13 says is a rebuke. So we'll get there in a second. But silencing, silence them. How do we silence them? Take a rain check. We'll get there in a second. But I think that, that what happens is that the New Testament shows us in multiple places that false teaching sprouted up really quickly. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in his last meeting with them. He said, wolves will come from among you. In Peter's epistles, he warns of these false teachers. Jude wrote a letter that he wanted to write, a letter about the Christian faith, but he, it was, he was so concerned with false teaching, he needed to change the subject of his letter to address the false teachers. This is something that we cannot be passive about. Now, we have to be careful not to see a false teacher behind every slip of the tongue. Please. (laughs) So this is a balance, right? We dare not just assume that everything that comes out of the mouths of the people on the stage is true. We ought not to be overly suspicious of everything that comes out of the mouths of the people on this stage. Do you understand? We, we have to be careful. We, we the, the elders and the pastors of Village Bible Church, we want you to hold us accountable. We want you to be paying attention. We want you to open your Bibles to make sure we're teaching what's in here. We also would like you to submit to us because Jesus told us to do that. And so we hold those two things in tension. And the reason that we hold it intention is because we want to follow good and right authority that God has placed above us, and we don't want to follow false authority. So there is a there's a positive and a negative to all of these things. Okay? Now Paul does something interesting in verse 12. He he quotes an actual person from Crete, a Cretan. Um, and that's where that word actually came from um, from years and years ago. They're Cretans. Okay? In fact, um what's interesting is that. The church fathers tell us that this quote that we're about to read is from is actually 700 years old when Paul quotes it. So it's a well-known phrase for the Cretans and also the ancient Greeks at the time. They had a ranking for the worst cultures. As you understand when when these empires spread, they swallowed up cultures, but uh, but many of many of them let those cultures stay the way they were as long as they kind of followed some more of the gods and paid their taxes and didn't upset the apple cart. What happened was the Greeks got to some of these cultures and like, man, this culture is really bad. These people are bad. And so they had the three C's. They had the Cretans, the Cappadocians, and the Sicilians. And they they thought that they were some of the worst cultures um, in the Greek and in the Roman Empire. And you gotta understand, remember Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. It's more isolated, which means it's able to have more of a distinctive culture. And um, the the ranking of the culture was really low for the Cretans. So the Greeks and the Romans did not have um, high high hopes for the Cretans. So when Paul says this quote here in verse twelve, he's assuming it's well known, and he's using it to his advantage. One of the Cretans, probably a guy named Epimenides, a prophet of their own, which is interesting because a lot of scholars think that he's being sarcastic there. A prophet. Okay. Of their own. It could be that, or it could be that the Cretans actually thought he was a prophet in their polytheistic religion. Um, or he could say that he unknowing, he might mean he's unknowingly prophetic in what he said. Either way, what did he say? Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. What a great national motto. <laughs> e pluribus unum, or, <laughs> or this. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Welcome to Crete. So what is he doing? And some some um, over the years have accused Paul of being racist here, that he he hates the Cretans. That's a false on its face because Paul has sent one of his best men to Crete to preach the gospel to help them not be Cretans. That this is, this is wrong on its face to think that he is racist for saying this. He's not condemning the Cretans either because he believes that they can be saved. There's an emphasis in Titus on God and Jesus being our savior. So what is he doing? He's actually, I think, saying that this applies especially to these false teachers. These false teachers are living up to the unfortunate national motto. The false teachers are living like Cretans. Instead of aspiring to something better, they are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is what defines them. But Paul, again, loves them so much, he wants them to know the power of the gospel that he has sent Titus to deal with them. Verse 13, he says, this testimony is true. He's not condemning Crete. He's at worst critiquing their culture And I think what he's actually doing is saying, look, this is what Cretans are supposed to be and you false teachers are living right up to it. You are acting exactly like this unfortunate national motto. You are perpetuating the worst of the reputation and they're harming the work of the gospel, so they must be silenced. And the testimony about these false teachers is true. Remember, this letter was written to Titus. It was probably read in the church. So I don't think the idea was that all the Cretans who are hearing this are like, oh man, Paul hates us. They go, oh yeah, that's, unfortunately that's often too true and the false teachers are acting like it. So what to do? Titus, Paul says, rebuke them sharply. So they must be silenced and they need to be rebuked sharply. Some of you are like me and you're like, oh man, I don't like the sound of that. That just sounds like drama and too much like interpersonal strife and let's all be at peace. Can't we all just get along? And some of you are like, yeah, let's give it to them. Heretic. I like calling people heretics. Let's do that more. So let's be neither of those people. Because what we have to do here is walk the fine line of the right tone and true content with the right goal. Okay? Okay. Contrary to what some have said over the last few years, tone does matter. Content equally matters. But what's even more important is the goal of that content and tone. What is the goal of the communication? Okay? So, um, this is interesting because in the same letter, Paul gives more instruction on how to do this. So, just turn the page or look across the page at chapter 3 of Titus. At the end of the letter, in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul gives this instruction. Titus, and by extension, elders, churches, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Yikes. However, In our passage, Paul says, I didn't finish the sentence, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or healthy in the faith. The reason for the sharp rebuke is not to win or own the libs. Okay? We're not trying to have a really, uh, a lot of hits on YouTube. Okay? Or our videos so that everyone can see how smart we are and how we have better arguments than the other side. The point here is is that we long for healthy faith in these people. The rebuke is so that they might believe rightly and act rightly. It is not to condemn them. So, right tone, true content for restoration. Now, just go back to Second Timothy, another page or two back, and see a similar thing that Paul told Timothy. Now, I understand that... The, as I say this, my tendency is to lean far more to the soft rebuke, not the sharp rebuke, the silencing. Ah, can we just give suggestions? I'd rather do that. So know your tendencies here, and let's try to find the way to, to rightly follow the Scripture. Second Timothy two. Um, Paul is, is. This is probably, probably Paul's last letter, so it's probably written after Titus but similar things were happening with Timothy. And in verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells this to, to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be quarrelsome. So we're not getting into just a quarrel. I like to get in the mix. I like to fight. I like to stir things up. No. He must not be quarrelsome, but kind to whom? All. Kind to everyone. Does that include false teachers? I mean, last time I'm a... The word everyone meant everyone, and all means all, so yes, there's no exclusions there. Kindness, right? When Jesus is being beaten, when he has a crown of thorns thrust on his head, when he's being falsely accused, does Jesus just go, okay, it's not going to be mean. I'm sick of this. No. Jesus is kind to the end. Think of the thief on the cross who's been hurling insults at him. And he finally goes, this is dumb, right? The thief on the cross is like, this is stupid. This guy's perfect. He didn't deserve this at all. Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, I want to be with you, please. And Jesus doesn't go, too late, buddy. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the ultimate kindness, isn't it? Kind to the end. So, after the Lord servant, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, which precludes impatiently blowing up at people. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So, somehow, there's a way to sharply rebuke someone in gentleness. That might seem impossible to some of us. Or the other way around. (laughs) But there is a way to sharply rebuke and silence false teachers with gentleness. Now, I'm not here, that does look different. Okay, it looks different from different personalities. It looks different in different venues. When I'm preaching to a group, when I'm talking to somebody one-on-one, there's, there's, there's some variation of how that looks. Okay, but, I, I, I want to just make sure that we don't major on one scripture and exclude the teaching of another one. Scripture interprets scripture. We have to figure out how these things work together. So, t- back to Titus chapter 1. Titus needs to silence them. Titus needs to sharply rebuke them. Titus needs to do this so that they may be healthy in their faith. That is what's really important here. The end goal is restoration. The end goal is pleading with people till the very end, not giving up on them so that they perhaps, by the kindness of God and the kindness of the rebuker, they might repent and turn to God. This is not easy. This sounds really hard. (laughs) I don't like it. But it is what we are supposed to do. Rebuking them sharply. Silencing them. So it must not mean then bullying, right? It can't mean that. It must mean persuasive, winsome, good, solid arguments. That's what it must mean, which means we've got to be on top of our game. It means we need to be studying the scriptures. It means we ask for help. It means we, we run things by. Uh, one of the teachers in our church asked me last week um, what I thought about one of the things they wanted to teach. It was great. And we got to talk about it, and, and he gave me some of his ideas, and I gave some of my ideas to be more persuasive, to be more uh, effective in our teaching. We want to make sure that we're that we're doing that so that the others may be healthy, sound in the faith. Now, there is is also this understanding throughout Scripture that there are wolves. And to to deal with wolves, we, we cannot be soft. But check this out. We can be gentle. We can gently rebuke and be insistent and be firm and trust the Lord to do the work. There is a role for the elders and the congregation to play in eventually excommunicating people from the church. That's never to be done vindictively. It's to be done in the hope that those people would see, we care enough about you to show you that you are wrong and you are hurting this church and you need to repent. So as Paul gives Timothy the instruction here, we need to figure out how this looks in our lives. Because all of us, not just the elders, not just the leaders, have Christians in, in our lives that we need to sometimes rebuke. That we need to ask questions of, that we need to figure out what's going on. When someone is following a false teacher, we need to figure out how to get in there and say, I don't think you should be listening to that or watching that. I don't think that's healthy for you. I don't think that's biblical. Fortunately and unfortunately, we have the internet. Um, there, are, there are some great teachers and preachers to follow um, all over the internet. And there are some horrendous teachers to follow on the internet. Be careful. Ask a more mature Christian, should I be watching this? Is this guy okay? Do you know about this teaching? Have you heard her teach before? Run that by somebody else, so that you're not being led away into unhealthy following of the scripture. Now we get some more of what was happening here with um, the, the Cretans and the false teachers. Because the phrase continues in verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. How do you, how are you healthy in the faith? By not devoting yourself to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, what are Jewish myths? Well, they're likely, um, they're likely these teachings and myths and legends and mixture of uh, Old Testament and things that happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there were stories that grew up around biblical characters but weren't Bible. So there were extra things added to the lives of people like Solomon. And these Jewish myths actually led away from the actual truth. This was rampant in the intertestamental period in between the, the end of the writing of the Old Testament and John the Baptist is coming. There were lots of things that sprung up in that time that were untrue. Some of them were on the more harmless end of the spectrum and some of them were much more harmful. And so, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. There's a little bit of um, of conspiracy theory soundingness to these things. Um, where they took over and they became, so. they might have been in line with things in the Old Testament, but they became so obsessive and became so compulsive to people that it pulled them away from the truth of Scripture. We have to be careful with these things. And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So to rebuke them makes them healthy. When they're healthy, they're not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now you might be like, I've never been tempted by a Jewish myth. (laughs) So this doesn't apply to me. Well, any false teaching is false. (laughs) All right. leading away from the truth, okay? So we're to be on guard against any of that. We are to be on guard against that, which is why we, we, we immerse ourselves in the scriptures. How many of you have memorized the whole Bible? And even if you have, how many of you have applied it perfectly? So don't stop reading it and trying to apply it, right? It's a big book. I've only got like 80 or so years to do this. That's not enough time, and so we immerse ourselves in the scripture and we immerse ourselves in right teaching and right doctrine so that we are not led astray and we can help others from being led astray. This works itself out in our lives. so we'll see here in the last two verses fifteen and sixteen how this works itself out: pure minds and pure consciences. Verse 15 to the pure, all things are pure, and that can be that that has been and can be abused to no end. To the pure, all things are pure, okay. Is that a get out of jail free car? What is that what is that? Is that a the phrase that gets you out of something? The, to the pure all things are pure. The outworking of the false teaching led to wrong living. And we see that a lot in first and second Timothy, we see it in Second Peter. Um, and we see that eventually the, the, the lives of the false teachers and the lives of those who followed went astray. Their character and their conduct went astray. So to the pure, though, all things are pure. And a lot of these Jewish myths had to do with continuing to make sure that everyone who wanted to follow Jesus, every man, was circumcised. And you had to follow the Jewish law. And you had to make sure that you were sticking to the Mosaic Covenant. Well, all of that led people astray from the pure nature of what Jesus had introduced by breaking down the wall that divided Jew and Gentile. So, to the pure, all things are pure. God has given us good gifts. Some of what Timothy has to endure is false teaching. Now, as well as Paul in Colossians, in Colossians and Ephesians says, basically, don't let anybody like hold you captive by giving you extra laws. By saying anything about Sabbaths or new moons or empty philosophies. Make sure that no one's leading you astray by these things, by saying that marriage and sex aren't good. No, they are good gifts from God. That was that was a false teaching. Or, or c- certain foods aren't good. No, no, God's given us all food to enjoy. When to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, we can understand that God has given us what He's given us for our good. And when our conscience is pure, we can accept those things. It doesn't mean we have to do it, right? So take pork, for example, right? It's just one thing that the Jewish people were not allowed to eat. Um, praise God. I had a lot of bacon yesterday. It was fantastic. Okay. But listen, if your conscience, if your conscience is telling you, I'm just not sure I should partake of pork. You know what? That's okay. Your conscience, don't foist that on everybody else because the scripture doesn't. Right? If you say, you know what? You're eating bacon and Jesus didn't. Yes. What, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Don't, don't foist your conscience on somebody else on something that is a, a gray area, on something that is not of primary importance. To so the pure, all things are pure. God gave us good gifts to be used in the right ways. And if we're accepting them in the right ways, then they're good. Now, what's the opposite? To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They twist and, and, and make everything um, out to be wrong or misuse it. And then he says both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The twisting that false teaching brings makes light dark and dark light. It makes good bad and bad good. It pairs things together that ought not to be paired. Faith in Jesus means you'll always be healthy. No. Faith in Jesus means you'll be eternally healthy and you might get sick tomorrow. And not because you don't have enough faith. That's a wrong pairing of those things. Look at verse 16. Here's the ultimate working itself out. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. I know God. I'm not going to obey him. That's inconsistent. That's hypocritical. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. One scholar said this, the essence of the Cretan theology was that they thought belief and practice could be separated. Paul spends most of the rest of the letter arguing that God's salvation work and the believer's life of obedience must go hand in hand. Of course, the zeal for good works commended by Paul cannot earn salvation, but it is the necessary corollary to God's salvation and is in line with his original intent. If you're saved by faith, then you'll walk by faith. That's, that's the idea that's going on here. And so when the false teachers profess to know God, they actually deny him by their works. They show themselves to be false. So this is why we have to be careful we have to surround ourselves with trustworthy teachers. That means your podcasts and your YouTube and your radio. All those things. Don't, don't fill your mind with good things at Village Bible Church and then during the week fill it with trash on media. Don't do that. Find, it, find the things where we're, where we're right, where we're right doctrinally. Stick with it during the week. Okay? Don't say, I love Pastor Ron's preaching. Man, Joel Osteen's great. No, Joel Osteen doesn't believe the same thing we believe. He's a false teacher. Don't do that. So, as we call the worship team up to lead us toward the right celebration of the Lord's body and blood, we want to just carefully say, Men, aspire to the office of elder. Because the office of elder is bound by qualifications that make you a Christian who follows Jesus carefully. Women, aspire to the qualifications given to deaconesses in First Timothy. Let's all aspire to be godly men and women. And therefore, have a defense against false teaching. You should learn and study the Bible, and do it with someone or in a group, especially if you're a younger Christian. Come to one of our community groups, or come to a Sunday school class, or come to ladies' Bible study, or go to the young men's Bible study on Monday nights. Do it in do it in, in a community so that we can protect each other. This, that we're about to celebrate, has often been twisted in false ways. And so we want to practice even the Lord's Supper In the right way. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing the song, I want you to transition from the sermon about false teaching into the opportunity that we have today to remember the body and blood of Jesus. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will